This is Growing Agri People, a podcast to inspire, power, and celebrate people of agriculture. Brought to you by Sally Murphitt of Inspire Ag, who believes the power of agriculture is in its people. Each episode connects you with people and ideas to help you grow your human capital. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of Growing Agri People. I'm your host, Sally Murphitt. The name Sue Middleton might sound familiar to you, particularly if you're on Twitter. Sue Middleton is super passionate about all things agriculture and regional development, and she's not afraid to use her voice to advocate for the issues that are important to those of us who live away from the latte set of city living. Sue, together with her husband Michael, grows grain, oat and hay, pork and citrus in the wheat belt of Western Australia. Although she was pretty quick to tell me in this interview that she's still a Queenslander when the state of origin is on. Now, there are many titles that can be attributed to Sue, but what I found myself contemplating after this interview is how do you find a title that encapsulates everything that Sue Middleton is and what she stands for? While it's difficult to find a title that neatly wraps Sue up in a bow, what I can tell you is that the woman that you're about to hear from next embodies collaboration, innovation and inclusion wherever her boots or her high heels hit the ground. Sue's diversity is reflected throughout this conversation through the ground we cover, ranging from ag tech and innovation, industry perception issues, diversity and inclusion, achieving a $100 billion sector by 2030, and regional connectivity issues. Speaking of which, you may hear some sound quality issues caused by low connectivity throughout this interview, but please stick with us. It's a cracker. What I've long admired about Sue is that she is not willing to accept the status quo if she can see that there's a better way to achieve improved outcomes for rural and regional Australia. She's a formidable woman. So without further ado, I really hope you enjoy this next edition of Growing Agri People. Sue Middleton, thanks for joining us on another episode of Growing Agri People. Thanks, Sally. It's a real pleasure to be here and be with you today. Sue, when they open the gates between Tasmania and Western Australia, we meet at a bar. I'm buying the first (laughs) round. What can I get you? Oh, gee, I think we'll just be so excited to um, be out again and to be meeting virtually that anything would be great, Sally. But look, uh, I think if we were to have a lovely Great Southern Shiraz or a Chardonnay from the Margaret River area, you'd certainly get me there every time. <laughs> Lovely. Shiraz or Chardonnay, I'll remember that for when we do get to meet in person because it's likely to be a long night, I feel. We've got <laughs> lots of industry issues and challenges to, to sort out. <laughs> so your Twitter profile says, and I'm, I'm going to translate here because there's one word in that that I had to get the dictionary out for, but essentially it says that you're a lover of rain, region, and agriculture. So in a tweet, remembering that you've only got 160 characters or less, who is Sue Middleton? It's an interesting question because I think when you do a Twitter profile, it's kind of the moment where you have to really boil it down to a a really kind of a short description. But how I would describe myself, actually, if I took away all of the kind of things that you have to do to, you know, get people to um, want to talk to you or like your personal brand things. Um, I'm a kid from the bush who's passionate about rural Australia and I've worked on that for 30 years and it's been my, my life goal and my life's work 
is to ensure that rural Australia can be prosperous. Um, and, and so that's me in a nutshell. Other people describe me as a rural businesswoman, an entrepreneur, a leader, a farmer, um, which I find uh, all they're all good titles, but they don't really kind of quite encapsulate the passion and just the joy I feel for rural Australia as well, Sally. So, yeah, it's, it, it's hard to put that in a tweet though, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So what's one thing people get wrong about you? This is one of the, I think, the things that I think holds agriculture back is that when I say I'm a farmer, I think people assume that I'm out driving the tractor and, you know, doing the production side of the business. Um, And we have a diversified family farm that I'm a part of. um, And I'm very much in the office, you know, like what what I call driving the top paddock in the business. So doing the thinking about the businesses and the strategy work around the businesses. And then, you know, really also making sure that the macro environment works um, for all of our businesses and our communities. And so people sometimes actually then think that that's not work. And I still have this question in my beloved own local community where people say to me, do you work, Sue? And I think, yeah, I do. I do do not only work, I work incredibly long hours and really hard at something that I'm really passionate about, um, but it's not visible. So one of the things that people get wrong, and I find that this is an issue and a challenge in agriculture, is that they don't see that as work. If you're not physically doing something, if you're not kind of out there working up a sweat, you know, working on the land, then that's not farming. Um, So that's, for me, um, kind of one of the key issues that we have is our image of agriculture. And and in, then in particular, for people who want to come into agriculture and become a part of agriculture, it's hard to access it as an industry because we're not talking about all those other jobs. We're just projecting this image is, is kind of like, and to be honest, I'll put a gender slant on this, it's the man on the land. So you, you mentioned that you're a country girl. I believe you're from Tintilla, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So uh, born and bred chinchilla um, and met my husband um, in a airport. In It was in Western Australia. I was over here doing a one-year contract and that's how I became a Western Australian. So I'm, I still think of myself as a Queenslander and certainly when the state of origin comes around, I become a passionate Queenslander, um, you know, and everything turns <laughs> maroon for a few days, um, although obviously that's been different this year. But for me, um, my life purpose hasn't changed. The location might have changed. Um, But coming to Western Australia for me was kind of a big part of my development as well because I think it opened up new possibilities for me. So um, it's really interesting. Whilst I still do identify as a Queenslander, I very much think now as a a, a Western stater and that's kind of a big part of my identity now. Uh, you met your husband, uh, Michael, uh, in at an airport in the, in the 90s and you essentially fell in love with him and, he, and his three kids. Now you together grow grain, oat and hay, pork and citrus in the wheat belt. That's quite a diverse enterprise mix you've got there, Sue. Yeah, and it's been part of my journey and I guess my role in Michael's family farm, even though I grew up in a family farm myself, I didn't have a particular like a vision of becoming a farmer. So coming back into Michael's family farm with a rural community development background, I kind of brought that development um, perspective to the business. And so um, diversifying the family farm 
really was something that came out of a strategy process that we worked through as a as a kind of a, a the family fairly early on, and then more citrus business grew out the back of that. Um, Michael and his brother Chris had already diversified into the pork, and so we also grew that business, and then we've also since reduced the size of that business, and more citrus really became the more dominant business going forward. But I still describe the Broadacre business as, as like the mothership. So it's the thing that's underpinned all of the other things that we've done and it's still a really important part of what we do. But the citrus business is in terms of the number of employees and, you know, also Northern Valley Packers. We've gone into a partnership with the Kay family at Bindoon and developed Northern Valley Packers. That's really, I guess, where the growth has been in the last 10 to 15 years. And for us, we wanted to be able to transform a sheep paddock and, you know, create a business that would generate a lot of jobs and drive the regional community. And, and we've achieved that. And that's really exciting. Uh, but I think one of my reflections would be about that whole idea of diversity is you've got to go one or two ways. I think it's hard to do both. If you go down the diversity kind of pathway with the family farm, then that means that you can't necessarily achieve scale in every one of the industries that you're in. So we've had to really pick and we've had to be quite strategic about what it is that we think the family farm would look like going forward. While it it is quite a a diverse enterprise, it also sounds like an insane amount of work. How do you manage it all? Great managers, (laughs) seriously. the, The biggest Um, skill you need to learn when you do what we've done, which is grow a business and bring in an equity partner and get into export and to do all of those things is you have to have great people working for you. So it's a real skill to be a good manager versus good at a job. And so for Mm. us, kind of going on that journey and, and learning to bring great people into your business who then run the business in effect and you're um, at, at a director level, as opposed to being in a doing role, um, it's really challenging. Um, and learning how to be that is kind of like the journey that all other businesses that scale up and you know get to growth stage have to learn how to do this. But in agriculture, where we're really um, an industry that's built on SMEs, and probably the supply chain has done in agriculture, it's done a lot more work in terms of kind of building that. Uh, management capacity and the HR capacity and the you know selecting great people and then you know trying to help people perform in the business um, uh, but that's probably less so a family farm experience so learning to do all of that has been a really big part of our journey and it's the only mm. it's the only way you can get to um, a larger scale business or or you know really drive that kind of growth that's then going to be good for regional communities is, is you have to go on that pathway and like find your way through that and learn how to be good at a range of different things. Attracting and retaining people can be a bit of a problem, not just for ag businesses, but also for regional communities. What's your experience of this, Sue? And if if this has been your experience, what have you done to, to find the right people in your business or oh, your businesses, I should say? Sally, this one, it's such a hot topic in ag at the moment you know, capturing talent and attracting talent to agriculture, it's just such a critical part of, um, you know, running, uh, I guess, not just running a great business and having a, you know, a business that's profitable and that you can reinvest in that business, but it's also about having great rural communities because that talent also ends up, you know, being 
in the, the local cricket club and the local hockey club or running the local PNC. So um, it's all very integrated and it really does matter. Um, so what we've done, and this is many years ago, is that we um, started um, uh, advertise um, to the widest level possible and look for people from anywhere. So Citrus is a really good example of this. We didn't have a particular view um, about where people would need to come from. We just wanted people who were professionals. My example I always use is our irrigation manager, um, Andy. He came from England and he was a mushroom farmer and had been working in a business where he was uh, working with two teams of women where there wasn't any common language in the two teams and he had managed in that environment. It's a good example of a person who had no citrus background but he'd shown that he had the capacity to manage people in what any of us would think would be a really difficult circumstance, you know, without, you know, 20 people in the shift and no one speaks the same language. So we've sourced people from everywhere and as a result we've become an employer that has become very experienced at bringing people from all over, all over the world and we're a big advocate for the visa system. So the conversation around the ag visa I find tends to drop to what I call the lowest common denominator conversation, which is, oh, that Australian farmers just want cheap labour. It's not actually the point at all. The point is not the, about the price of the labour. The point is about the productivity and, like, the your capacity to have a great business and to have people be engaged in your business and really drive your business. And so you need to find people who are really passionate about agriculture and want to become professionals in ag because they may not come with all of the training or all of the skills um, that you need, but you can do that as a business. So that's been our approach and it's been a key successful part of our approach. So I get quite annoyed when people talk about the visa system as if it's, um, you know, some kind of way of undercutting a labour market price. It's not that at all. We pay um, for many of our managers and our senior staff well above market rate because we value what they bring to our business. And it's really critical because Australian agriculture isn't yet at the stage where it's graduating people who want to then come into operational roles in ag. They're certainly coming into the supply chain in ag and they're coming into professional roles in ag. So it's really important that we're able to draw from overseas. And clearly I'm talking about in a post-COVID world because right now the set of circumstances are quite different that we're facing. We need to protect community health as a priority. Um, but we have across all of our businesses people who have worked for us for many, many years. Um, so having those kind of people who've got that real, uh, you know, long-term knowledge of your business and your goals and your objectives and they're really aligned around intent in your business and then having people you can bring in on a more short-term basis that's a real winning formula we find. Sounds like that your philosophy or your approach is hire for attitude, train for skill. Yeah definitely and we de attitude is everything because you have a culture and you have a way of doing things and probably you might ne not necessarily for example, be able to wrap that up in a job description and really capture that well. We do try to, like I've got to say, we do actually try to tell people from the get-go, this is who we are, this is why we are, this is why we do this, and if you come to work for us, this is what you can expect, but you still just don't get that right every time. So 
we are probably hiring for people that um, we think will be a good fit with who we are as a family business. And even though we're grown and the business is now certainly in terms of all of those businesses, if you look across the employment, uh, if you were to look at peak season, so this is during picking and packing, would be somewhere up to say 200 people. Um, and so you can't possibly get it right every time. Even when we've expanded, we expand with other families. So we partner with other families. So family values are absolutely at the, the core of who and what we are. And I think that that's agriculture's story in Australia. So when people kind of grow from small to medium, and then obviously some businesses goes from medium to large, um, family values can still be at the core of that, even though the business is a larger one. And I think that's one of the things that I really love about agriculture is that is a real underpinning culture in um, certainly with lots of the businesses we deal with and in lots of the industries we're in. You've mentioned a couple of times culture there, Sue. I, I think, you know, that's a topic in, in the agriculture sector that is potentially undervalued here in Australia. What does culture mean to you? I guess the way I would describe it is it's the way things are done around here. So it's a, it's a bit like back to my point before of a who we are. You know, we come from a family base, but culture is really critical. Um, and I think we get it right in some cases and then in other cases in agriculture. So I'm going to make a broader comment, not about our businesses now, but just more broadly, sometimes we don't get culture right in agriculture and that kind of hard working, you know, get out there, get the job done, do whatever it takes to get the job done, that kind of can be a little bit detrimental to us as well. So it's important to balance that with getting the kind of the resource allocation for the job right and getting safety right and making sure that people are well resourced to do their job as well. And so sometimes I think that one of the reasons why ag gets a bit of a bad rap is because that culture gets a bit overplayed and overblown and we need to think about how we're looking after people. And I'll give you an example of what I mean by that is because we've got a horticulture business, one of the things that I it gets said to me regularly when, when I'll be in policy settings or I'll be sitting in a room full of people who may be from the government, they'll say something around how um, employees are treated in the horticulture industry because we all know there's terrible stories out of there. So, you know, it's the lowest common denominator in every industry who will be treating people uh, not according to even what is legal or what is appropriate um, for people in that industry. Um, and people will say to me that that's the norm. And I'll say, no, that's not correct. You're talking about um, a small number of employers who are doing the wrong thing and the book should be thrown at them. But that doesn't mean the rest of us should be judged on that basis. Sue, I read an article from I think it was Women's Agenda earlier in this year that quoted you as having a career goal in your early 20s to, and I quote, learn to make Australia prosperous by the time you were 30. So you're 30 with a few years' experience now. Sue, how's that going for you? Yeah, it's, uh, I still laugh at that goal. It was at age 22 and I actually wrote it on a CV I had at the time and I said, I want to create a prosperous rural Australia. And, and um, when people would ask me about that goal, I would say to them, oh, yeah, I will have achieved that by 30 and then I'm going off to work for the UN and I'm going to um, uh, solve world hunger. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> the fact that 
I'm still working on that first goal kind of saved me from the UN, I guess. That was one, that's the only way I can put a positive spin on the kind of complete naivety of being 22 years old and thinking that you could change something that is, um, it's it's my life's work. Um, I talk about it in kind of, I've got a good friend who says that I talk about it in biblical terms. Um, and this particular friend said to me recently, I had a really, came an absolute cropper on a project that's really important. And she said, who do you think you are? Do you think you're God or something? But jokes aside about, you know, setting, um, I guess, yourself a, a life purpose at that age, I kind of, I look back and I go, um, that's kind of weird for a 22-year-old to do that. But at the time, I remember when I was 22, I was really down on myself because I didn't have a life goal because I thought that's that's how you do life, you know. You get out there, you set a great big hairy-ass goal and then you go for it. Um, and I think that actually would be how I would define my career. And that underlying purpose has not changed. The projects change and the projects have um, changed considerably in the 30 years of my career but they're still all about the same underlying thing and I actually asked myself this question two years ago Um, I was doing some planning for myself like I played a nil-sum game with myself and I said if I wasn't doing this what else would I do who else would I be and I couldn't come up with anything else so world hunger kind of it's just never going to float my boat and the prosperity of rural Australia is and so this will be me until there's no more breath left, Sally. It'll, I'll be one of those old farmers who want to die on the tractor. I want to die on the job facilitating a workshop, <laughs> talking about you die we, with your boots on. I want to die with my boots <laughs> on. No, I don't actually. That's not actually true. I don't want to die because I think probably most of us kind of that's what COVID's taught us is most of us want to actually live a long and prosperous and healthy life. But, yes. So I guess um, that's my reflection on, you know, the kind of um, deciding and choosing that goal then actually made a whole lot of other decisions for me even and I did not know it at the time. And so I do say this to young people, you know, you can set your life direction, you can put your sails up, but the wind will also take you where it takes you. I, I wasn't, you know, ever meant to be living in Western Australia. That wasn't the goal. Um, and so... Um, go with where the wind takes you as well because it will often be in the right direction and if it's not in the right direction and you land on you land on a kind of a beach that you didn't see coming that can still be a great thing and there's loads of learning in that you kind of uh, stole my thunder there a little bit so talk it taking on the the wind theme I was going to say I'm not trying to blow wind up your high-vis vest or anything here, but you're a very successful, award-winning and accomplished woman and you've got many titles, which you explained earlier in the in the interview. Um, but I, I wanted to keep it real, not only for, for the listeners but for myself also and um, perhaps talk about a time where you, you failed at something and you mentioned something that, that happened recently. Without going into too much detail, I'm interested to know what you actually learnt from that. Yeah, so it was a project about solving connectivity in Western Australia and the key learning was a moment where one of the minister's advisors that we were dealing with said, you know what, you want to climb Everest, that's fine, we get it, we agree with the Everest, but you've got to get to base camp first. And I just said, that's the problem, that's my whole problem with 
where we are at the moment with this issue is that if we accept that we get to base camp and then we go up the camp, the second camp, the third camp, the fourth camp, and we learn on our way and, you know, we come up with market models as we go, um, I'm terrified that people are going to get residualised in that process. And that's what just totally frightens me about that prospect. But I had to accept that they were right and that we actually have to do it piece by piece and that the piece by piece doesn't mean that we can't pull it all together. You know, that it's probably a 20-year play and the fact that I want to do it in two years is neither here nor there because that's not going to happen and it's not going to be the way it works. So I learnt and relearnt because I have to learn this. I have to relearn this lesson all the time. Patience um, and I think also um, understanding that the system can only work at a certain pace and the fact that I'm not happy with that pace, you know, is that's my problem. And so I have to also learn that and relearn this is that people have got to come along on that journey and it matters if they own the solution as well and that you might think that you know everything and you know how to solve a problem, but actually that's not the point. The point is other people understanding it and other people being on the journey and everyone owning the solution and, and working together, And which is funny because I'm a person who talks about collaboration all the time. But to be honest, sometimes I don't do it. Sometimes I'm just like racing off going, hey, guys, hey, everyone, follow me. Look, oh, you know, I've got this idea and I found out we can solve this connectivity issue. So, yeah, it, for me, my learning, it's kind of like I have to relearn those lessons and um, kind of understand that if you ground yourself back in the first principles in the project, then um, and, and sometimes plodding on a thing is entirely acceptable as well. It's just that that's just not my way. <laughs> so I have to yeah. kind of, I have to take a good solid beating every now and again, Sally, and then start again. I think from what I've taken from what you just said is that self-awareness is the, is the real key thing here. So when you get really determined and you can see how a thing can be solved, one of the things I think you can do is you can stop listening to people and um, self-awareness and really high-quality listening and really wanting to create value in other people's world rather than just in your own world, that's like a really important part of being a good leader as well. If you have to keep learning that because you get excited and you run away with an idea, if you have to keep learning that in life, well, then so be it. And, and that's what probably every failure teaches me as well but like can I just say purpose still won't change we still need to be able to solve this problem um it's just going to take a lot longer to get there what is it they say the impossible just takes longer the Australian ag sector's got some pretty ambitious goals and one of them is to be a hundred billion dollar sector by the year 2030 what's the biggest challenge to your mind in achieving that goal look other than the ones I've already mentioned which I won't go into in more depth but ag tech is going to be the seriously if we just fully leaned into ag tech now and were able to solve the the kind of the barriers and the challenges around ag tech that would get us to a hundred billion. So the Australian Farm Institute have done some uh, research and kind of looked at this and I think their figures are around twenty point three billion would be the potential value uplift in agriculture if we really leaned into ag tech. So it's my number one priority. And so I also feel like the R&D system 
and the innovation systems that we're investing in, you know, at kind of more at a state level, um, that we should just be all aligning around that goal because that's, you know, in Western Australia it's worth, when we did this project looking at connectivity, it's worth 3.5 bill, which is a 50% increase on our current um, export for kind of our, you know, our grains area in Western Australia. So it's a big uplift and it also will deliver people with businesses that will be, you know, um, I guess like quality improvements. So it's not just around efficiency or improving, you know, the actual um, productivity, so the amount that you produce, but it also gives us the capacity to really finesse our systems and to be able to use um, data that we already have plus data we'll be able to capture within farming systems and really drive our profitability and use it to really build the best decision-making. It's also about capturing all the talent. Um, I'm on Twitter and people will know, anyone who follows me on Twitter will know that I'm always talking about gender diversity in agriculture. And I'm not talking about it because I'm a woman. I'm actually talking about it because it's a performance issue. And we know from other sectors that where there is um, gender diversity and diversity, there is um, a really high level of financial performance. Back when I did Rural Woman of the Year, and that was 2010, the stats told us then that there were more women graduating from ag college than there were um, men at that time. So the supply is there, but that supply coming into agriculture as an industry and then turning up as, you know, CEOs and senior level managers and on boards, that whole chain is not working because the stats at the CEO and kind of leadership level in agriculture organisations have not budged during that time. It's not a talent issue, it's not a merit issue, and we're actually not harnessing and capturing that talent at senior levels in agricultural organisations. And I guess my my next point then links to that is that what we I believe we that really helps agriculture is bringing in outsiders. So bringing in people who don't think the same as everyone else, who challenge the status quo, and who say, "Hey, there's some other ways that we could do this." And look, in mining, this is how you tackle this problem. Or in um, you know the world of AI, this is how you would solve this problem. Well, one of the great things that came out of COVID was that we managed to effectively explain, or partly, what food supply chains look like. And we explained to people why there wasn't food on their supermarket shelf. And people have got really interested in food now. And and we know this from the stats around the fact, you know, and people are buying more and eating more at home, um, naturally. You know, addressing all of those things and being able to tackle those things I reckon, would get us to 100 bill. As we begin to wrap up today, Sue, I'm interested to know who has inspired you recently and what was it about them that you were drawn to? One of the things I've got out of Twitter is that I can see all the young people in agriculture and I can see what they're saying. And I've got to say, they just absolutely blow my socks off. I I just think that they're extraordinarily mature. They're really, really future-focused. Um, like they're using all the tools and the platforms, like I learn off them. Um, this is particularly true even in my own business, Ag Dots, uh, where um, I'm in business with Lizzie, who's my stepdaughter, and she just teaches me stuff all the time. 
So I think my inspiration's coming from um, the generation who's following me into agriculture and I just kind of feel like all I have to do is just help these guys um, get their dream opportunity in ag and everything else is going to be fine. So that's who's inspiring me actually in agriculture at the moment. As uh, an organisation, we've got an agriculture in WA is called Ag Zero 2030 and we want to really create a kind of a positive picture of what climate solutions could look like for farmers. Um, and, yeah, and lots of the people we're working with are, you know, a good solid probably two decades uh, younger than me, and I just look at them and go, gosh, you're so clever and I just really need to make sure I help you and I've just got to get out of the way. Sue, what do you wish the ambitious and motivated 20-something-year-old Sue had known or realised all those years ago? Lean into every opportunity and lean into the crises. You know, they're where the learning's available. I think what I would say to that young Sue is just go hard. You know, if you can dream it, if you think you can do it, you should just have a crack. Um, And don't be held back by what you think other people think of you because they're probably not actually thinking anything about you anyway, because you're going to get to 53 and you're only going to think about the things you didn't do. You're not going to regret the things you did. You you, you were just going to go, gee, I wish when I had that opportunity to travel and do this or do that, I wish I'd done it. And when you get the wind in your sails, go as hard as you can because there'll be other times when the wind will blow against you and it will feel really tough and it will feel really hard, but the time will come when the wind will blow with you again and, um, you know, be fit and strong and, yeah, look for the opportunities. Sue Middleton, we will meet for that Shardy or Shiraz at some stage in the near future, but until then, I want to thank you for your willingness to share your story so candidly, for your ability to think outside of your own stockyards and also for your courage to speak up on issues that are important to rural and regional Australia. Thanks for your time today, Sue. Thanks so much, Sally. Growing Agri People is an Icon Media production for Inspire Ag, hosted by Sally Murphitt with the theme music from Daniel King. If you enjoyed this episode, please share this podcast with someone who you think will get some value out of it. And make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so that you never miss an episode. Listener.